The reign of James I of England is probably best remembered not for anything he did or how he came to power, but how he was nearly removed from power in one of the most audacious assassination plots in British history. An event and a date that's still remembered over 400 years later. Remember, remember, the 5th of November. Gunpowder, treason and plot. This is the story of Guy Fawkes and the Gunpowder Plot of 1605. Ever since Henry VIII had broken with the Roman Catholic Church nearly 70 years beforehand, uh, Catholics in England had been suppressed and oppressed. The Reformation was briefly interrupted by Henry VIII's daughter from his first marriage, Mary Tudor, uh, when she became queen in the 1550s. But Elizabeth, her half-sister, ascended the throne in 1558 and the Protestant ascendancy continued thereafter. Yet during Elizabeth's time, Mass could not be legally celebrated by Catholics. It was punishable by heavy fines. Priests were imprisoned or indeed executed because they were seen as agents of a foreign power. Catholics couldn't have their children legally baptised as Catholics, nor could they marry as a Catholic or die with the Catholic last sacrament. Every person over 16 had to attend their local Church of England church on Sundays and Holy Days and had to take Protestant communion twice a year. Many Catholics refused and were heavily fined as a consequence. An act of supremacy passed by Parliament in 1563 said that uh, you had to take an oath to the Queen as head of the Church of England to hold high office in England. Catholics didn't take all of this lying down. In 1569, there was a major Catholic rising in the north of England. And of course, many plots uh, centred around the exiled Mary, Queen of Scots, who was staying in England and who was eventually executed by Queen Elizabeth. And of course, there was an external threat presented by King Philip II of Spain, uh, formerly the husband of Mary Tudor, uh, when he sent his Spanish Armada to try and have a regime change in England. So with, the, with these legal uh, suppression in England, with these foreign interventions, with people being executed, Catholics in England had to tre tread a careful line. Some Catholic peers said they had a duty to support the Pope if he came in peace to England, but if he came in war, they would support the Queen. And in the meantime, they placed their hopes uh, in the future, when Elizabeth would pass away and maybe a Catholic king or queen could be restored to the throne. Because the real, I suppose, hope for the Catholics was that Elizabeth had no obvious heir, she had no children. Both her siblings, Edward VI and Mary, had died childless. And so the line of succession really had to go to, well, Henry VIII's sisters. His elder sister, Margaret Tudor, had married King James IV of Scotland. Her granddaughter was Mary, Queen of Scots. And Mary's son was now King James VI of Scotland. Aged 36, James, following the line of uh, primogeniture, was the obvious successor to Elizabeth. But he wasn't the only potential successor. Following the death of her husband, the King of Scotland, Margaret Tudor then married another Scottish nobleman, the Earl of Angus. And their great-granddaughter was Lady Arabella Stuart. Lady Arabella Stuart was 27 years of age. And while she was a Stuart, she had the advantage of having been born in England. In fact, actually, she lived all her life in England, principally in the East Midlands with her formidable grandmother, Bess of Hardwick. 
at Hardwick Hall in Derbyshire. At the time, Bess of Hardwick, by the way, was reputed to be the second richest woman in England behind Queen Elizabeth. So a powerful, powerful matriarch in their family. Meanwhile, Henry VIII's younger sister, Mary Tudor, not to be confused with Mary Tudor the Queen, had married, uh, she'd married the King of France, and when he died, she'd married Charles Brandon, the, the Duke of Suffolk. Their granddaughter was Lady Jane Grey, who we've talked about in another episode. Lady Jane's sister, Lady Catherine Grey, had a son, Edward Seymour, Lord Beauchamp, aged 41. So if we wanted to look at the English side of the Tudors, we've got a potential claimant. And remember, Henry VIII was really anti the Scottish uh, side of his family. He had a real dislike of his sister and of the Scots. And he had specifically ruled them out of his, of his will as potential successors. And whilst we're over on that, that English side of the family, uh, another daughter of Mary Tudor, Lady Eleanor Clifford, was survived by two granddaughters, uh, Anne and Elizabeth Stanley, who were just at the, the top of their teens, entering their 20s. Thus, James was the foreigner. And he wasn't just any old foreigner, he was from the old enemy, Scotland. Initially, senior members of the English court favoured Lady Arabella Stuart, ahead of James. But in the mid-1590s, uh, Elizabeth's chief advisor, uh, Robert Cecil, started to swing behind James. And there were several reasons for this. For a start, uh, James was one of only two uh, male candidates. And whilst good Queen Bess and her sister Mary had proved that uh, having a female monarch was certainly possible, there were many men and women who felt it went against the natural order of, of God's will and that a king, it had to be a king and a man king. Secondly, in 1594, James had a son named after his great-great-great-grandfather, Henry Tudor, Henry VII of England. Young Prince Henry was a nod towards his English heritage, and it was noted south of the border. That son, Henry, also meant that James offered a secure dynasty going forward, something that Lady Arabella Stuart, who wasn't even married, couldn't do. And nor could the Stanley ladies. They, were, they hadn't got any children yet. Only Edward Seymour, Lord Beauchamp, could match him on this level. He had a son called William. And finally, sort of in James's favour, is that unlike his mother, Mary Queen of Scots, James was a Protestant. Meanwhile, Catholics were looking around desperately. If these were the claimants, and they were all Protestant, who was their Catholic champion? They had to look even further than north of the border. And they actually looked across the English Channel to Archdu Archduchess Isabella, the daughter of Philip II of Spain, who could, um, who could trace her line back to Edward III of England. She was currently regent in the Spanish Netherlands, which is sort of the um, uh, Belgium in modern-day uh, parlance. And, uh, and, she, and uh, she, so she was a proven ruler in her own right. But while she was a Catholic, she was Spanish. And if the English at this time disliked the Scots, they disliked the Spanish even more, especially, don't forget, as her father, Philip II, had sent the Armada less than 15 years beforehand to try and invade England. She was also a woman and she was childless, which meant that even if they had her as a Catholic monarch, there would be no Catholic dynasty and they were basically kicking the problem down the road. Many Catholics started to wonder whether James of Scotland, son of Mary Queen of Scots, could be the better candidate. Meanwhile, in Scotland, James was worried about that Catholic threat represented by Isabella. He was unsure just how Catholic or Protestant England really was. And so he played a canny game with Rome 
and the Pope. He argued that, you know, his mother, Mary Queen of Scots, was a Catholic and his wife, Anne of Denmark, had also converted to, converted to Catholicism. And he was no lover of the Calvinists who had pushed him around when he was a young king, when he succeeded his mother. So, you know, he was, he was interested in this Catholicism and, and might come back to the, to, to the cause at some stage in the future. So the Pope offered to champion him against the other contenders, in particular Isabella. James was never seriously contemplating converting. What he was serious about was wearing the crown of England. And when he would gain that crown of England, well, he wouldn't shed any blood for, um, for one side or the other. Catholics were okay as long as they, they kept quiet. In 1603, Queen Elizabeth I of England died. And on her deathbed, she signalled that James should be her successor. Messengers rushed north to inform the King of the Scots that he was now also King of the English. James VI of Scotland was now proclaimed King James I of England. But just because you're proclaimed king does not mean that your hold on the crown is secure. All those other potential claimants were alive and well, and all of them, bar Isabella, were in England. James the Scot would have to tread very carefully in England, most importantly with his new Catholic subjects. Almost from the word go, James was faced by plots looking to replace him. In 1603, that very year that he was proclaimed king, the main plot, as it was called, uh, involving several lords and indeed Sir Walter Raleigh, uh, looked to replace King James with Lady Arabella Stuart. Shortly afterwards, the by-plot, um, instigated by English Catholics, wanted to imprison James in the Tower of London until he gave Catholics full rights and removed the anti-Catholic advisers around him, especially Robert Cecil. The papacy in Rome were horrified. They thought James might still convert, so what on earth were the English Catholics doing trying to replace him? But James was now suspicious of the loyalty of his Catholic subjects. In the first parliament of his, in his reign in 1604, the king spent most of his energies on trying to unify England and Scotland rather than seeking Catholic toleration. In fact, actually, more anti-Catholic legislation was passed and Catholics were deeply disappointed. But there was a growing split between uh, conservative older Catholics and radicals, um, in particular a group of provincial Catholic gentlemen led by Robert Catesby. Catesby, fiery Catholic crusader, was joined and pulled together a small group of conspirators. His second cousins are Francis Tresham, uh, Robert and Thomas Winter, and their brother-in-law, a man called J John Grant. He also brought in brothers Jack and Christopher, or Kit Wright, and their brother-in-law, Thomas Percy, and Percy's servant, a man called Thomas Bates. Thomas Keyes, and later his cousin's husband, Ambrose Rockwood, were also brought in, as was Sir Digby Everard. To this tight group, bound by family bonds, was added one outsider, Guy Fawkes. Guy Fawkes, a Yorkshireman, well-built, with thick reddish-brown hair and a beard. He'd been a mercy, Catholic mercenary fighting for the Spanish in the Spanish Netherlands under Isabella uh, for the last 10 years. An experienced soldier. Both he and Tom Winter, who'd also been a soldier in the Spanish Netherlands, had travelled to Spain in the last couple of years of Elizabeth's reign, seeking support for a Catholic rising. So the conspirators believed that they, were having, they had Spanish support behind them. But a new political reality 
was growing in Europe and they seemed to be unaware of it. That Spain now saw England not as their main enemy but France and they would do anything to have peace with England and preferably an alliance with England to counter that threat of France. England and Spain, after all these years, were actually looking to come to peace. On Sunday the 20th of May 1604, just over a year after James Breen proclaimed king, there was a meeting uh, between Catesby, Tom Winter, Jack Wright, Thomas Percy, Guy Fawkes, who is now called Gideo Fawkes, in the Duck and Drake Inn on the Strand in London. They took mass together, which was later to be used by their enemies to create a link between the conspirators and Roman Catholic priests. And they agreed to blow up Parliament, that place, as they, to quote, that has done us all the mischief. There would also be a rising in the Midlands where their families had a lot of lands. Uh, they would seize uh, King James's daughter, Princess Elizabeth, who was residing in the Midlands, and they would ask for foreign help. Percy rented a property inside the Palace of Westminster where Parliament met. At the time, um, there were houses, merchants, taverns in the palace, uh, more like a sort of modern-day shopping mall than at the centre of government. In March 1605, he secured a lease on a cellar and installed Guy Fawkes under an alias, John Johnson, in the house. Fawkes, John Johnson, secured 36 barrels of gunpowder, which he moved into the cellar. On the 9th of June, Catesby confided with Father Garnet, a Catholic priest, by way of confession, that he was willing to kill innocents for the cause. Garnet was highly alarmed, um, but he claimed later he didn't know it involved gunpowder or killing the king, and it was, uh, it was told to him in confession, and he felt he couldn't tell anyone else about it. By the end of July 1605, Parliament had been prorogued uh, from, uh, they changed it from the 3rd of October to the 5th of November. And that was the date that the conspirators set for their uprising. On the 26th of October, Catholic peer Lord Mount Eagle received a strange handwritten message. It advised him to be absent from Parliament on the 5th of November and to retire to the safety of his country estate. And it said, quote, they shall receive a terrible blow, yet they shall not see who hurts them. That letter can still be seen in the Public Records Office. Monteagle took the letter to Cecil, the Secretary of State. The King was out hunting and was not expected back before the 31st of October, so Cecil decided to let the plot, as he said, ripen. He knew in one respect about the plot, he knew the target, he knew the place, he knew the date. What he didn't know at this stage was that it was a Catholic conspiracy, nor indeed did he know who any of the conspirators were. Monteagle's servant told Thomas Winter and Catesby about the letter, yet on Sunday the 3rd of November, just two days before the set date, Catesby, Winter and Percy met again, and they decided that despite uh, urging from Tresham to not do it, they would carry on. That very day, a search had been made by the authorities of the Palace of Westminster, um, They'd noticed a lot of firewood in a cellar, which seemed a bit strange because it was rented by Percy. But Percy was living in a house on the Grays Inn Road. So why did he need lots of firewood for the house that he wasn't using? A second search was made around midnight. And this time, the authorities found a tall man in a cloak and dark hat, booted and spurred, and they arrested him. He claimed his name was John Johnson, a mere servant of Percy. And he kept that story up 
for the next 48 hours. A warrant was issued for Thomas Percy. Uh, they went to the wrong address in London. He was able to escape. London was in turmoil. Kit Wright and Percy fled. And as the day dawned, Robert Keyes also mounted a horse and got out of the capital. Six of the plotters uh, rode together and rendezvoused with Digby at Dunchurch in Warwickshire, 12 miles from Coombe Abbey, where young Princess Elizabeth was residing. Meanwhile, with the plot out in the open, Londoners were permitted to light bonfires to celebrate saving the king on that very night, the 5th of November, 1605. Spontaneous demonstrations occurred outside the Spanish ambassador's house and he hastily lit his own bonfire and threw money to the crowd to celebrate the saving of the king. As well he might, because he would have been in the parliament when it was blown up too. Parliament met briefly and recorded the events and the arrest of John Johnson. The original copy of those minutes hangs in the Nays lobby in the House of Commons. Fawkes was interviewed by the King and he showed no remorse. And so the King ordered him to the Tower of London and authorised torture from the rack, by the rack. He was tortured on the rack for the next 48 hours and he finally cracked on the 7th of November and revealed his real name. The following day, 8th of November, he finally gave the names of his fellow conspirators. The faint scrawl of his signature on his confession bears witness to his weakness after all that torture. The seven conspirators up in Warwickshire in the Midlands raided Warwick Castle. They obtained some horses and some gunpowder before fleeing to Holbeach House in King Swinford near Staffordshire uh, via Corton uh, Court, a National Trust property now in Warwickshire. They arrived there in the afternoon of the 6th of November. Their mass rising of Catholics in the Midlands of England consisted of 36 men. The gunpowder that they had with them was wet, and so they tried to dry it out in front of the open fire. Catesby got his explosion. It just wasn't the one he was expecting. Tom Winter arrived to find that John Grant was badly disfigured, and Catesby and Rockwood themselves were injured. On the 8th of November, at 11am, 200 armed militiamen arrived at Holbeach House. There was a shootout between the government men and the remaining Catholic conspirators. Amazingly, one single shot hit Catesby and Percy together, killing them both. The Wright brothers also died in the shootout, and the rest were captured. Lord Chief Justice, the Lord Chief Justice declared them guilty of treason and sentenced them to a traitor's death. On the 30th of January, 1606, Digby, Robert Winter, John Grant, Thomas Bates, were executed at St. Paul's Churchyard in London. The following day, 31st of January, 1606, Tom Winter, Ambrose Rockwood, Robert Keyes, and Guy Fawkes were executed in the Old Palace Yard, Westminster Palace, the palace they'd tried to blow up. They were brought to execution, strapped to wicker hurdles that were dragged, dragged behind horses along the ground. There, they were hanged, drawn, and quartered for high treason. The worst possible death for the worst possible crime. They all died as Catholics. Guy Fawkes was so weak that when he dropped in the hanging process of hang, drawn and quartered, his neck broke and he was saved the rest of the grisly execution. The conspirators were all dead. Just as Father Garnet and other priests had feared, the prizing achieved nothing. In fact, their greatest fear was about to come to pass. 
that there would be repercussions for England's Catholics. By January 1606, you know, King James was referring to Catholics, his English Catholics, as his ungrateful Catholics. Another oath of allegiance was forced through Parliament. Catholics wouldn't be allowed to practice law until 1791. They were not allowed to serve as officers in the army or navy. They couldn't act as an executor of a will or a guardian of a minor. They couldn't possess a weapon. They couldn't receive a university degree till 1871. Catholics couldn't vote in local elections until 1797 for town councils and things. They couldn't vote in parliamentary elections until 1829, nearly 200 years later. In fact, it wasn't until 1791 that Catholics were actually allowed to practice their religion without penalty in England, nearly 200 years after the gunpowder plot. Even to this day, we remember the gunpowder plot of 1605. 5th of November, bonfires, guys being burnt on the, uh, on the bonfires, firework displays. Um, the irony, of course, is that Guy Fawkes was never burnt. Uh, he was hung, drawn and quartered, the last bits he was dead with, but he was never burnt. But those first bonfires had been celebrated on the 5th of November, 1605. Fireworks were being recorded by Samuel Pepys at those celebrations, the 5th of November celebrations, less than 60 years uh, after the, the original gunpowder plot. And of course, they still mark uh, bonfire nights in England to this day. In a quaint tradition, Parliament is still searched on the eve of the opening, state opening of Parliament by the Yeoman of the Guard, who, finish it, after finishing their search, drink a toast to the monarch and her good health. So how close did those Catholic conspirators come to cha a regime change in England? Well, true, they placed uh, the bomb, effectively, 36 barrels of gunpowder under Parliament. But Cecil was aware 10 days or so before the, the actual plot, and so was the king. But the search was not random or good luck. You know, it was pinpoint. They knew exactly where they needed to go. And by the way, the, the gunpowder had decayed. No foreign, power no foreign power showed any sign of assisting the Catholic conspirators before the plot and most certainly not afterwards. There was no obvious Catholic rising, even in the Midlands, where they were initially told by Catesby that the plot had succeeded. No peers came out in support of the plot. In fact, um, they would have been in the House of Lords. Above all else, they really didn't have a plan of what to do next. Easy enough to blow up Parliament with the King in it. Maybe more Catholics, if they'd succeeded, would have come out of the woodwork. And maybe uh, uh, the foreign powers would have got involved once they'd got over the fact that they'd just lost their own ambassadors being blown up for the future the greater good of Catholicism. There was no guarantee that they would have successfully abducted Princess Elizabeth, or that she, as probably the most Protestant member of her family, would have uh, complied with their wishes for their, her to be a surrogate monarch. And anyway, James's second son, Prince Charles, was not attending Parliament, and they had no plans to abduct him. So he could have become king, as he did later, Charles I. And they were just, quite frankly, the English were just as likely to rally around Lady Arabella Stuart or Edward Seymour or Lord Beauchamp or indeed Lady, Lady Anne Stanley as any Catholic, uh, Catholic king or queen that they could pull out of the woodwork. In the end, the gunpowder plot achieved nothing. What it did do was fuel an anti-Catholic backlash that lasted nearly 200 years. James was to rule for another 19 years until his death in 1625. He was succeeded not by Henry, Prince of Wales, who
who had died in 1612, but by his younger son, who became King Charles I. And we're going to hear a lot more about him in another episode. Oh, and do you remember Princess Elizabeth, who was going to be abducted by the Catholics and she was going to be like some sort of puppet Catholic queen? Well, she actually married a Protestant prince over in Germany. She became uh, the Queen of Bohemia. And her grandson became George, Elector of Hanover. And we're going to hear a lot more about him, too. Remember, remember, the 5th of November. Gunpowder, treason and plot. <laughs>